about your questions or not. Um, but uh, what we might do is open it up now. If you'd like to ask Murray a question, something you've been thinking of. Peter, you scratched your ear or something? Yeah. You got a question? Okay, Peter, go ahead. <laughs> and what I might try to do is I might try to repeat your question back so that people with back row can hear. Um, just in chapter 2, yep. verse uh, 5, it speaks about offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's always had me scratching my head a little bit. What, what sort of spiritual sacrifices do Christians offer? Yeah, great question. It's obviously playing on the, the question was... Uh, so the question is in chapter 2, verse 5, it talks about offering spiritual sacrifices. So the question is, what kind of sacrifices do Christians offer? Yeah, it's a great question because Peter's obviously picking up on the Old Testament practice of sacrifices being offered to the Lord uh, in the temple in Jerusalem and before that in the tabernacle in the wilderness, animal sacrifices. And the fulfilment of that whole sacrificial system comes in Jesus' death as a sacrifice for our sins so that we no longer have priests offering animal sacrifices in the temple because we have the great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And it makes you ask that question, what sacrifice could there be left? Uh, and so I think uh, we've got to read that uh, verse there in the context of the passage. Uh, it says we're going to be offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then you keep reading and you ask, what, what are the Christians here being encouraged and expected to do? Uh, and I, I think I'd take us through to verses 10 and 11 and 12, where it talks about, it talks about declaring his praises, uh, and then it talks about living such good lives. Uh, and I think Peter is framing the Christian life in terms of uh, a sacrifice to God that's acceptable to him uh, because it's lived in Christ. And the most concrete description you get of what does that sacrifice look like is praise to God uh, and obedience to him in lives of godliness. You get a similar idea from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 where he says therefore my brothers in view of God's mercy offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and again it's the same idea of a life given over to obedience and service to him uh, which can be thought of using that imagery of sacrifice. Michelle. Yeah, great question. So, if you th uh, you're throwing yourself into church, uh, that's good news as far as Michelle's concerned. Uh, if you're going to head off to Sydney to study or moving to another town, what are the kinds of things that you should look for in a church that you might want to throw yourself into? Yeah, uh, great question. And I guess the answer goes back to what is the church? And the church is God's people uh, called by God. Uh, collected by the work of his spirit through faith in Jesus Christ together. And therefore, because it's God's church, God gets to lay down the ground rules for his church and, and define what the church is uh, and shape its life and its mission. And so I guess you're looking for a church that reflects what you read in the Bible uh, about what the church is. 
Uh, and what would that be? Uh, well, there's a lot of passages you, you could go to, but one that I often uh, go to is in Acts chapter 2 uh, at, uh, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and after God so marvellously saves 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Uh, and you think that those are there we're giving a, a little description of some of the central activities of a church that is focused on the Lord Jesus and is grounded in his word. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. So you're looking for a church where uh, God's word from scripture, uh, that's the apostles' teaching is talking about the, the teaching of the apostles, which we now have access to in scripture. Uh, so you're looking for a, a church that's committed to the Bible uh, and to teaching from the Bible, uh, a church that's committed to uh, love and fellowship uh, and to prayer, uh, to dependence on God. Those are the kinds of things I'd be looking for uh, in a church. Yeah, grounded in the scriptures, uh, full of Bible teaching, where people love each other uh, and want to live for God. Yeah. If you, I mean, you could press further on that question uh, and, <laughs> and ask, okay, but uh, there's a number of churches around like that, uh, perhaps, uh, and in which case you say, oh, praise God, isn't that wonderful that there's a number of good Bible-believing, Jesus-centred churches where there's loving fellowship um, uh, and there, I guess, well, how do you decide between them? There it's going to be a, a number of secondary factors of do I have relationships with some of the people in the church that I can pursue and develop and further? Do I have relationships with non-Christian friends who might, for some reason, more easily connect into that church rather than that church? I, I'd say they're kind of secondary situational considerations. But the main thing you're looking for is a, a church that's focused on Jesus, teaching from the Bible, where people love each other and want to serve the Lord. Anybody else have a question? Oh, I'll throw one in there. Oh, Pete's got a question. No, no, no mine, mine's just a filler question. <laughs> Yours is probably more profound. Uh, Murray, as the war on terror, etc. Uh, what perspective should Christians have on war? Mm. By the way, it's good to repeat these questions because those who are listening on the internet at hand um, will be able to know what Murray's answering. Mm. Oh, that's a big question. What perspective should Christians have on war? Uh, and I think the place to start would be to say that war is always and only ever uh, something to grieve uh, and something to be um, sad about and reticent to engage in. It, it's a sign that we're in a broken world. Uh, in, the new, in the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world, there was no war. Uh, and in the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness is at home, there will be no war. Uh, and so the only reason we have war is because we live in a broken, fallen world where people are sinful. And so it's part of the brokenness of the world that we grieve. And yet, having said that, we do live in a broken world uh, and therefore sometimes sadly war is necessary uh, and so there's, there's a long tradition uh, in the church actually of thinking about under what conditions would it be right for a nation or a country even a, a nation led by christians uh, to engage in warfare uh, and uh, there's a you know thinking about that's become known as just war theory i don't know if this is where you, you're getting at um, <laughs> uh, so 
down through the ages of church history, people have been thinking about this. Uh, some of the big names in the development of this kind of thinking are Augustine and Aquinas uh, and Calvin. Uh, and, and they came up with some, I think, quite helpful guidelines. Uh, things like, well, you only ever enter into war as a last resort. Uh, if you can solve the problem in some other way, then solve it in some other way, because war is always going to involve bloodshed uh, and violence and you know, there are going to be negative outcomes as a result of war. So enter into war as a last resort. Uh, and, and you only ever enter into war if you're a legitimate authority. Uh, we can't just have people rising up all over the place and saying, well, I think I'm going to start a war on my own authority. <laughs> we need a, a legitimate authority, a government that has the, the trust of a significant group of people uh, who can declare war. Uh, so last resort, legitimate authority, appropriate means. Um, you only, when you're engaging in warfare, use the, the means and the force that's necessary to achieve the purpose of the war, not more. Uh, because war is a last resort and it's, it's something to grieve and so you only just do what's necessary to prosecute the war. Uh, there's five of them and I'm, it's been a while since I've thought about this and I've got three. But you can see the kind of thinking uh, that's going on there. It's war shouldn't be here and war won't be here. We live in a broken world so drat, war is here. Under what circumstances then can we justify war and how can we minimise its negative impacts? Uh, that's the kind of thinking I think we need to do about warfare. Liam, is that a question? Uh, I've got a follow-up question from that. So, yeah, wars are a reality, and wars displace people. Displace people become uh, asylum seekers and refugees. Uh, and that's an issue that Christians need to engage in in Australia. What would you say is a right, what would you say is a helpful Christian response to the plight of um, refugees wanting to live in Australia? Yeah, that, that's a big question too. Uh, so first I'll offer an apology, which is I'm a humble Bible scholar, not a, a social um, commentator or politician. Um, so yeah, there's more that needs to be said than what I'll say, uh, because it's a complicated question. Uh, but I, I think our knee-jerk reaction as God's people uh, who've been welcomed in, though we were aliens and strangers and, in fact, enemies by a loving Heavenly Father, should be to welcome people. Uh, that, that applies, I think, not just to asylum seekers and the refugee issue, but just in life in general. That our, our knee-jerk reaction towards people who come towards us in any kind of need ought to be, well, what great love the Father has lavished on me, how can I withhold that from somebody else who comes to me uh, in need? Uh, at the personal level, that's got challenges enough, but at a national level, when we're talking about how do we as a nation welcome those who come to us in need, uh, that's where more complications come in because in welcoming people, uh, we have to take heed of the, the needs and the rights and the, um, the, the, the challenges that are facing the people who are already in the country. And so you've got to factor those in as we welcome people. Uh, and that's that's the kind of tension or the balance that um, I think we need to be thinking through as we face that issue, is how do we encourage our government uh, to welcome the stranger all the way through the Bible. That's a, that's a value and a, um, in fact a highly prized ethic. Uh, if you read through the law in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, the Israelites over and over again are told to welcome the stranger. So, we want to see that reflected in Australian society. How do we become a nation that's good at welcoming 
those who come to us asking for help, and yet do that in a way that's sustainable, that uh, is achievable within the resources that we have, um, that doesn't cause undue disruption to the kind of uh, society that we have operating. That, those are good and legitimate questions to ask. Uh, but again, I want to stress, I think our, our gut reaction and our basic stance should be, we want to welcome, how can we do that? What's um, your take, Murray, on uh, some of the greatest dangers for the Christian church today? The question is, what are some of the greatest dangers for the Christian church today? Yeah, again, it's a great question. Uh, and again, I'll offer the same apology. <laughs> um, I, look, I think always a great danger for the Christian church is that we lose our focus and our grasp of the central truths of the gospel. Uh, and so every generation needs to be renewing our commitment to humbly sitting under God's word and learning from him about what he's done for us in the Lord Jesus by his life and death and resurrection to save us. Uh, and every generation needs to be renewing its commitment to those central truths, uh, to, to trusting them, to teaching them, to proclaiming them, to living by them. Uh, so a danger that faces the church, especially in a society where there is uh, so much else going on, um, is distraction from the centre of what the church should be on about. Uh, and while it's good and important to engage with the debates about the redefinition of marriage, and it's good and important to engage with the questions about asylum seekers, and it's good and important to engage with all of these issues, uh, and the church should be engaging with all of them, we've got to make sure that we don't get in that distracted from uh, the main task for us, which is listening to God as he addresses us in his word uh, and holding on to the gospel by which we're being saved and then proclaiming that to the world that needs to hear it. So that's, whether that's the greatest danger, I don't know how to judge these things, but I think that's a danger, uh, is distraction or diversion from what's central. I'm sure there are others. Julia? Yeah, great question. So the question is, uh, Murray's thinking about 1 Timothy chapter 2 towards the end. Yes, let me read it for you so that um, people know what we're talking about. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I guess we're thinking about uh, verses 8 and following where Paul says, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with proprietary. That, that, that's the passage we're talking about. Uh, this is obviously a very difficult passage uh, and probably needs a much longer conversation. But I guess a, a couple of things I'd say uh, in response to the question of how to understand and interpret this passage is that at, at rock bottom, Paul is teaching that there uh, are God-given differences between men and women uh, as created. Uh, and that those are good things which we're to embrace and to celebrate. Uh, and you can see that from the way that he appeals to the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. 
uh, and 2 where he's talking about Adam and Eve and then to the fall in Genesis 3. Uh, some people interpret this passage to say that this is just Paul's cultural baggage coming through in his teaching. Uh, and I've never been convinced by that interpretation uh, because of Paul's appeal to creation. Uh, he seems to be saying that these differences between men and women are part of God's good design for us uh, and therefore we're to receive with thanks uh, the fact that I'm a man and you're a woman uh, and therefore we have different makeup and uh, different roles to play in God's economy. At the same time, uh, although there are those God-given differences, those God-given differences sit within a basic fundamental equality that we have as people made in God's image. Uh, and so therefore we, we want to recognise that men and women are of equal worth and dignity, um, equally made in God's image, uh, equally to be honoured and cared for uh, and listened to, uh, even as we also recognise within that deep unity of humanity that we have, there are different roles for men and women. And the sharp point comes through, oh, <laughs> I'm finally getting to it, uh, where it says a, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I guess that may be part of the, the, the question, what's going on in the question. This is certainly what's been a lot discussed about this passage. What does that mean? Especially when it says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Uh, and so often the touch point for the interpretation of this passage is what role can women have in the life of the church and especially in the church's teaching ministry? I guess that's really where uh, the question becomes very sharp. Uh, and I, I think you have to read this together with uh, the rest of the New Testament and it's teaching about men and women in church. Uh, and I guess the place I'd start there would be to say that the authoritative teaching of the Word of God in Christian congregations uh, is entrusted by God to the elders of the congregation. Uh, and uh, this and other passages, I think, point us in the direction of saying that the elders are to be male. Uh, and so therefore the the leadership in the teaching of a congregation uh, is to be get led by the, the male elders, including a minister, if there's a minister. Uh, but does that mean that women can have no role in the teaching ministry of the congregation? Well, no, not at all. I don't, I don't think so. Um, there's other passages, like in Titus 2, which speak about uh, older women teaching younger women. Uh, so there's a, a very important teaching role there for women occurring within the leadership provided by the male elders. Uh, you've then got to work out oh, what does this look like in detail and in practice. Um, I do not permit a woman to teach. Right, does that mean I can't have a conversation with my wife in case she happens to teach me something about the Bible? Well, no, of course it can't mean that. <laughs> uh, does that mean I can't have a, you know, men and women shouldn't be talking together about the Bible in case the women teach? No, of course it can't mean that. Uh, Paul's concern here is with order in the congregation. Uh, and he's concerned to, for the men to be stepping up and taking the lead, especially the male elders, to be stepping up and taking the lead in providing the teaching. Uh, and that other teaching by other men and by other women in the congregation will take place within that context. Um, now, we could press further uh, and get into lots of detail, but I might stop there or I'll keep going all afternoon and, and I'll let you ask more questions. Uh, okay. Thanks, Ed. Um, another question? I'll get another pillar question. <clears throat> uh, so, um, last year, the Australian government legislated for same-sex marriage. Yep. And so, uh, men are now marrying men, women are now marrying women. Um, so, it's only a matter of time that uh, 
some of us here are going to uh, meet people who are married to someone of the same gender. And I'm not quite sure how I'm going to respond to that when it happens to me. Yep. Um, and that may be an issue for other people here as we seek to live as godly people in this world. Do you have any advice on that? How we would respond in that kind of situation? I'll say some things, but whether it, it's a difficult issue, isn't it? I guess I'd put it first in the context of just living with friends and family and workmates uh, who are committed to sin. Uh, that, that there's no particular um, heinousness in homosexual behaviour that's worse than slander or gossip or lying or stealing or heterosexual sexual immorality. Uh, and so it, what we're dealing with here is not a special case. It may become kind of more sharp in its focus for us, but it's just another example of how do we live and love friends and neighbours and workmates who are committed to a sinful lifestyle. Uh, and there are, there are plenty of other kinds of sinful lifestyles that people embrace. Um, and the command for us is to love them uh, as God has loved us, uh, to, to reach out, to not withdraw, but to engage, to be on the front foot in relationship with people, uh, and yet at the same time to find ways to call them to faith in the Lord Jesus, which will involve repentance from their sin. Uh, and so it's, it's that kind of dynamic, which I guess is the dynamic we have with any unsaved uh, friend, workmate, colleague, family member, uh, which is how do I love this person, welcome them, uh, be proactive towards them in my relationship with them and yet at the same time long to see them saved and so call them to faith in Jesus and, and help them to understand that that will involve a turning away from uh, their sinful lifestyle. But that, that's a very general answer. So specifically then, um, I've got two friends, uh, they're both male, they're married to one another, I want to introduce them to someone else. Uh, do I say this is Bill and his husband John? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so because what you're doing at that stage is you're just recognise, recognising the sinful reality uh, that in our society now men can marry men and women can marry women, uh, and so um, your your language is just reflecting uh, that social reality. Now, sometime in the longer term discussion that you have with your friends. Uh, I think conscience will demand that we'll make it clear that we don't consider that is marriage in God's sight and that it's a departure from God's will for our lives. Um, but to make a, a point of that in a social situation where you're introducing friends to friends, uh, I think is going to become quite cumbersome <laughs> uh, and make you quite obnoxious to people. Uh, and so I think it's, it's about developing longer term relationships where you can clarify uh, uh, where you stand on those issues in the context of love and friendship. Yeah, yeah thanks, I find that helpful. Um, another question? Linus.
Right. So Gwen's question is, is it an option just to introduce people as their partners mm -hmm. rather than the male's husband? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Yeah. And of course, there's a difference in how we speak about ourselves uh, and how we speak about others. Uh, and so I, I think because language communicates reality, we do want to try to reflect in our language the truth that God reveals to us about his world. Uh, and so certainly when we're speaking about our own relationships, I also resist, I don't want to introduce my wife as my partner, she's my wife, uh, because that's part of God's good order for our society. Uh, but when I'm then dealing with other people who don't recognise God's good order for our world, uh, then I need to find ways to engage with that. And I think that's quite a good suggestion. Yeah. Another question? That's a great question. You should come to college and learn Greek. <laughs> I'm going to read you a little section from our Confession of Faith in the Presbyterian Church, which is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, this, is, this is an older document. It was written in 1647, so that's just one generation after Shakespeare. So if when I read it, the language sounds a bit Shakespearean, that's why. <laughs> but there's lots of gold in this uh, statement of faith. Uh, and it's got a, an answer to that exact question, actually. Um, uh, and let me just find the exact uh, right bit, where it says, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most commonly known to the nations, were immediately inspired by God, and by his singular care and providence have been kept pure in all ages, and therefore are authentic. And so, when there are controversies in religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. You see what that's saying? God gave his word in Hebrew and Greek, uh, and so that is our authority, the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. Uh, and that's why we require of all of our ministers in the Presbyterian Church of Australia that they learn both Greek and Hebrew. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough call, uh, but we think that's vitally important because those are the languages in which God uh, revealed his word. And so we need at least one person in each congregation uh, who can have access to the Hebrew and the Greek. But then what I love about this statement is it continues, because you're thinking, oh, but I don't know Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> it continues, but because these original languages aren't known to all of the people of God, or we might say to most of the people of God, who have a right to the scriptures and interest in the scriptures, and in fact are commanded in the fear of God to read and search the scriptures, Therefore, we should translate the scriptures into the common language of every nation, wherever they come, so that the word of God will dwell richly in all of God's people and they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. 
See, isn't that beautiful? It's got this lovely balance. Yes, God gave us his word in Greek and Hebrew, and therefore we need leaders who know those languages. And when there's controversies, we need to be able to look at the original. Uh, And yet, for most of us, that's not going to be the reality. And so we need to have translations, and we need to keep translating the Bible into whatever language the gospel goes to so that everyone around the world can have access to God's word. And it is God's word, even in translation. And so you can pick up your English, your international version, and you are reading God's word. Uh, If there's a dispute about it, then you might need some help to go back to the Hebrew and the Greek. But you should not doubt that what you're reading is God's word in translation. Now, there are better and there are worse translations. But when people ask me that question, which is the best translation, it's very difficult to answer. Uh, Because the question is, best translation for what? Right? So there's a spectrum of translations. Some of them try to preserve the word order and the forms of speech of the original Greek and Hebrew. And so you might say, oh, that's best because it's closer to the original. But because every language works its own way, when you read it in English, it's pretty clunky. Down that end of the spectrum are translations like, uh, in the older version, the King James and the Authorised Version, uh, and nowadays the ESV. They're closer in terms of their word order to the originals, but they're clunkier to read. And so other people take a translation strategy that says, well, I want to translate the sense of what's there in the original, but I might change the word order, but I want to be faithful to the sense of what's there so that it reads well in English. Uh, And that's a legitimate way to translate. And so that's more uh, translations like the NIV. They take more that kind of... It reads better in English, but it's slightly... um, You know, it's a little bit more uh, loose than, say, the ESV. And then there are others right down this end of the spectrum, uh, like Eugene Peterson's The Message, uh, which are really a paraphrase. That's that's quite loose, uh, quite far removed from the originals. So which is the best translation? It depends what you're using it for. But I think any of the major English translations, the ESV, the NIV, NIV, um, those kinds of translations serve us really well. We're actually blessed to have multiple translations to choose from. So the question is that the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace through faith. There are other passages like, like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Uh, there are other um, passages uh, which talk about the importance and the necessity of good works. Uh, so um, how does Murray reconcile, how should we reconcile the two? Yeah. Again, that's, that's a great question and a big question, but a, a really important one, actually. We are saved by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Uh, But we probably should add something to the end of that, which is we're also saved for a life of devotion and obedience to the Lord. Uh, And you see that as a pattern the whole way through the Bible, uh, when God rescues the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, When they get to the Red Sea, God says to them, um, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to stand still. (laughs) 
It's really clear God is saving them and they are not contributing one iota to their salvation. It's God who parts the Red Sea. It's God who smites Pharaoh. It's God who brings them to himself. It's all of grace. And then he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai and he says, now I've rescued you, you're mine. Here's my law, obey. Uh, and that, that's not just an Old Testament pattern, that's also the New Testament pattern. Uh, when God comes to us in his son, the Lord Jesus, uh, we were dead in our sins, Paul says in Ephesians 2, at uh, the beginning of the passage there. But we contributed absolutely nothing to our salvation. It's while we were dead that Christ died for us. It's all of grace and only of grace. Uh, and we receive it only through faith. And yet, in the very same passage, in Ephesians chapter 2 there, Paul says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. And then he continues, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. Do our good works contribute to our salvation? No, not at all. Not in the slightest. Are they necessary for God's people? Does he require them of us? Yes, absolutely. And that's the, that's the balance that we find in Scripture the whole way through. Um, that we mustn't for a second think that our works contribute to our salvation, that there are any ground or basis or foundation upon which we can earn God's favour or merit his acceptance. No, that's free, uh, utterly free because of what he's done for us in Christ. And yet as his rescued, saved, chosen people, he calls us to obey him uh, and we must obey. So that, that, that's how I put those two together. I, again, I can keep going. We can dig further. There's more. <laughs> but that might do to start. Again, great question. Um, and part of the, 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 the beauty of those slogans is they capture a truth really sharply. Part of the problem with those slogans is the truth is much more complicated than you can capture in a slogan. <laughs> uh, and so what's being communicated by that Reformation slogan, we're saved through faith alone, is that actually it's only in Christ alone that we're saved. And faith is the instrument. That's, that's the word that's been used. It's, it's like the channel... Uh, it's, the, it's the thing that connects us to Christ. And that's what matters, that you're connected to Christ. And so why by faith alone? Because it's faith that connects you to Christ as you trust in him. Uh, faith alone in that sense. But at the same time, if you're connected to Christ, uh, then you've been given new life in him. And his spirit in, is in you. And he will work in you by his spirit and begin to transform you. So that your life will change and there'll be the fruit of your spirit, the fruit of his spirit in your life. Uh, so that you won't be the same person. Would you be perfected before Jesus comes? No, there'll always be ongoing sin. And yet there'll also be 
the beginning signs of new life, uh, transformed living. And so a fuller version of that Reformation slogan would be, and it was Martin Luther coined this, we're saved by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. Because true saving faith that connects you to Christ will always result in the fruit of transformed living. Now, that transformation in all of us is messy, incomplete. We take three steps forward and two steps back. Uh, there's still plenty of sin in our lives as Christians, which we continue to need to deal with. Uh, but if there's no fruit in a person's life, if there's no transformation, then that should lead, and particularly about ourselves, then that should lead us to question, do I really have faith in Christ? Joanne, we will take two more questions. Joanne? Great question, and forgiveness is a, actually very compl more complicated than we realise. <laughs> um, uh, I find it helpful to distinguish between forgiveness and reconciliation. And forgiveness is my decision as the wounded party to no, to no longer hold that action against you. Uh, and so that's uh, something that I am in complete control of because I'm deciding to no longer hold the sinful action against you. Uh, at the same time, that's a long way short of reconciliation, uh, that I can't be reconciled with that person unless they acknowledge their wrong, repent of it, and receive my forgiveness, and then we can be reconciled. And so uh, that's one distinction that may help. Uh, I'm getting that from Jesus in Luke 17:3, where he says, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Uh, and so I think what we're seeing there is a desire to forgive them, a willingness to offer that forgiveness leading to reconciliation. Uh, and therefore you rebuke your brother or your sister, you hope that they'll repent, and then the forgiveness can reach its goal and you get reconciled. But if you offer the forgiveness and they don't repent, then that's, that's where it... Uh, ends and you end up with an unreconciled relationship, uh, which is really sad, uh, but I'm sure if we go around the room we can share examples of that kind of situation. Um, so yeah, distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation may help, uh, but even where somebody has wronged you and they, and they refuse to repent, you can, it's not easy and it often doesn't come quickly, uh, reach a point in knowing that God has forgiven you of being ready to offer forgiveness to that person. Uh, and therefore not holding that action against them, even if you never get reconciled to them. 
as a start. Catherine's got the last question. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, wow, great, great question. Because I think that is the situation of many people in our society today. The gospel is good news for sinners who know they are unreconciled with their creator. But if you don't believe in a creator and you don't believe in sin, then the gospel seems irrelevant uh, because it speaks into that context of somebody who's in broken relationship with their creator because of their sin. Uh, so I think what that should help us to realise is that in our conversations with our non-Christian friends and colleagues, we, we need actually to tell them more than the gospel, not less than the gospel, because they need to recognise that they're a creature made in the image of God, uh, that there is a God who created them, to whom they owe their lives, to whom they owe worship and obedience, who they've ignored and rejected, uh, and who they're now in broken relationship with because of their sin. But they need to understand creation, they need to understand sin before they'll get the gospel. And so therefore our conversations need to be bigger and wider than just Jesus died for your sins. So that's, that's the first part of the challenge. Uh, the second part of the challenge is how do we communicate that to people who aren't interested, don't see its relevance. Um, uh, that, you know, that we've got to find ways that, of speaking into the culture uh, in ways that the culture understands that there is a God who created you to who you own your life and obedience. Uh, and because of your sin, you're in broken relationship with him. Are there particular passages in the Bible you can take people to? I'm not sure that there's one silver bullet passage that open this one up and, hey, presto, they'll get it. <laughs> and that's because that kind of blindness that people has, have is a spiritual blindness. It's, it's not merely an intellectual thing. It's not just they need to understand that God created them and that they're in broken relationship with him. They need to get it deep in their soul and they'll only get it deep in their soul if God convicts them by his spirit. And what can we do there is pray and plead with God to convict them and to open their blind eyes uh, and then keep communicating those truths to them. Traditionally, one of the passages that um, preachers went to was the law, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. This, these are the demands of the Creator for how you should live. Uh, and if you... If you're honest with yourself and you go through the Ten Commandments, you realise you've broken every single one of them multiple times. Uh, so that would be a fairly heavy-handed kind of <laughs> approach uh, in conversation with a friend. But you, you could open up the law and say, look, this is my conviction about how God wants us to live. Um, what do you make of this? And that could be the start of a conversation. I'm thinking Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. But I'm not saying that's a silver bullet. <laughs> Thanks, Murray. Um, that's been good, hasn't it? It's uh, Murray off script or Murray on plug. <laughs>